This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for courageous conversation. Tonight is the last in a series about trauma. We're going to be talking tonight about trauma, denial, and fear. And I wanted to say ahead of time that a parental advisory is recommended for tonight's show. Because the show focuses on subjects that are hard to talk about, at times it can also be hard to listen to. So caution is advised for tonight's subject. Um, My guest tonight is Jessica Stern. Jessica is an expert on terrorism. She's a former member of the National Security Council during the Clinton administration. She's the author of two books about terrorism. But most recently, Jessica is the author of the book Denial, a Memoir of Terror, about the rape that she and her younger sister endured when they were 15 and 14 years old. Welcome to Safe Space, Jessica. I'm not hearing you. I don't know if you're still with us. I'm going to talk a little bit about the book while we're waiting to see if we can find you again. So part of why I wanted to talk about denial is the powerful way in which survivors of trauma are often met with disbelief. In my clinical work as a psychiatrist, what I find is that so one of the key indicators in why someone will or will not you know, heal from a trauma is how they are believed or not when they go to tell somebody. So Jessica, in her really powerful memoir, talks about the impact of denial. She was raped at gunpoint and uh, by a rapist that turned out to have raped uh, 44 other people. And after her rape, the investigation by the police was dropped because they did not believe her and her sister. So the impact of denial... Uh, both in her system and her family, was really powerful. Let me check in. Jessica, are you there? Nope, we're still not hearing you. Basically, I want to focus the show on two aspects of denial. The first is looking at the impact of why denial seems to happen so much, but secondly, what the impact of that denial is. And um, I may read a section of the book myself as a way to bring Jessica's voice here while we're waiting to bring it literally. Jessica says, but when observers become complicit in the victim's desire to forget, they become perpetrators too. Bystander and victim collude in denial or forgetting, and in so doing, repeat the abuse. This is the alchemy of denial. Terror, rage, and pain are replaced with free-floating shame. So I want to talk a lot about how being disbelieved, how being minimized uh, ends up in really an experience of shame and loss of trust of the self in the survivor. Jessica closes that passage by saying, the dizziness brought on by the denial of others is often worse than the original crime, which is a very powerful and potent statement, I think, about the importance of taking seriously survivors and the impact of how, how the impact of not doing that is on them. The second part of what I want to talk about is fear. Jessica talks uh, really powerfully about one of the reasons that she wrote this book was realizing how much she did not feel fear. It's an extraordinary story, really, of how she became um, an expert on terrorism. She would travel to Pakistan alone and interview terrorists. She was one of the first people to realize that you could actually ask terrorists what, what their motivations were, what their feelings were, why they were doing what they were doing, that it would be possible to have conversations. 
and and to to relate to them as people with even you know curiosity and empathy and uh, what's striking what she found is that she was not afraid she had this capacity to numb out her fear and go into Pakistan terrorist training camps and interview people and not be terrified herself. And it was only later that she began to realize that this, in fact, was a symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder, that she had learned to completely dissociate and numb out from her own fear. And then, of course, really strikingly, what she noticed was the contrast between feeling terrified by really random things, like terrified... um, by the sound of a, you know, a sharp noise or the, or the sight of something that was reminiscent, like a trigger of the trauma. So there was this sort of really inappropriate, intense fear in moments when one wouldn't expect it. And then there was this complete absence of fear in a situation in which objectively, I think most of us would feel absolutely terrified. So to tell you more about the story, we're still trying to get her here. There's much activity in the engineering room. This was a stranger rape, which is a very rare, you know, I think women are socialized to feel terrified about the possibility of stranger rape, but the statistics are almost all rape and sexual assault is uh, perpetrated by someone the victim knows. This is by far the minority of sexual assaults. And in this case, it was a stranger rape who broke into a home where two young teenagers were alone. I'm going to check if Jessica, are you there now? Yes, I am. Oh, I'm so glad to hear your voice. <laughs> I've been talking about how wonderful your book is all by myself. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and reading from it to include your voice one way or the other. So I've been telling a little bit about the story, but it would be so much more powerful to hear it from you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what happened when you were 15, and then we'll go from there. Well, uh, a man came into the house. My sister and I were there, and he had a gun, or and he insisted that we show him the silverware drawer and marched us around the house, um, had us put on different items of clothing, brush each other's hair, and ultimately raped us and the whole time saying, if you don't do exactly what I say, I will kill you. And if you speak, I will kill you. And he was there for quite a long time. It was a very unusual sort of rape. Um, He didn't seem afraid that he would be caught. And many years later, when I went back to get the file, uh, I wanted to try to understand what had happened. The police officer who gave me the file had to redact it, and he realized this was had to be a very easy-to-solve crime, that we had a very complete description of the perpetrator. And he reopened the case, thinking that this was a rapist of children. He also discovered that there had been a very similar rape at a private high school, very close to where we were, He thought it might be a serial rapist of children and discovered, he solved the crime, discovered that there had been at least 44 victims in the Boston area, always the same description of the perpetrator, always the same description of his gun, his very unusual MO, um, putting on a mask, 
only at the moment of the rape. He didn't seem, it was almost as if he were taunting the police, mm-hmm. sort of wanting them to capture him. What I do in the book, I it's partly a true crime story because I'm working together with the police to try to understand, first of all, who was the guy, and then more details about what his character was. He hung himself before I got a chance to interview him. But um, So the reader goes with me trying to learn about that. But the main thing I'm trying to do is actually describe what it feels like to have symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder from the inside out. You do that so powerfully. So maybe let's let's shift to that. In some ways, the biggest thing is that sort of dichotomy between fearlessness in moments of great danger and then intense fear in moments where it's sort of triggered by tiny things like a kind of lighting or a certain sound. And I wonder, maybe we could talk about the first, uh, the fearlessness. You know, I understand that you traveled to terrorist training camps and interviewed terrorists and were unaware of feeling fear. I wondered if you could say a little bit more about that experience from the inside. Yeah, I I was very curious. Well, I am <laughs> very curious. Um, but I was so curious about the motivations of terrorists that I started going to Pakistan and Indonesia and Beirut and uh, Israel and uh, to to talk to them. And I realized that I was good at it, that they liked to talk to me. And what I felt was curiosity and calm, you know, when I was met by a bunch of guys with Kalashnikovs, I I felt calm. I wasn't really aware of the sensation of fear, except at odd moments. I was much more aware of intense curiosity and the feeling that I was getting important information. And it was only much later that I realized there was something very, very wrong, (laughs) that I should have been feeling fear. I should have been aware that what I experienced as adrenaline, a kind of adrenaline related to curiosity was actually fear. One of the things you describe almost is in your your own process of recovery is, is a kind of reclaiming of that capacity to feel fear. And I'm curious, do you feel more apt to be afraid now in situations that are dangerous? I do, and there are certainly pros and cons. I was going to say, it's hard to even somehow want that necessarily, I imagine. I, you know, I, I assumed, you know, until I started learning about this myself, that this weird reaction to danger was unique to me, but it turns out it's not at all unique. It's not a function of my personality. It's a result of... Um, exposure to the threat of death and or a reaction anyway to the, to that exposure and uh, it's not uncommon if you talk to someone like Bessel van der Kock, who I, I saw that you had interviewed or will interview he sees this as as if something 
critically important to help the victim recover that sense of fear because it's so dangerous not to feel fear. Fear is protective. Yes, that's right, that we end up putting ourselves back in repetition experiences if we don't, if we're not aware of our internal warnings signals. So I want to ask you about the other side of it, Jessica, because I was also very moved by this. You mentioned that, you know, that certain sounds or certain kinds of lighting can really, particularly like a ticking sound, could just be unbearable. But you also write, there's a beautiful, there's a really powerful passage that I wondered if you would read on page 62 of your book of an instance where you were very, had in, felt like an emergency for something that might seem otherwise benign. I wondered if you could read that. Yes, this this is a, also, a, I understand now, a very common reaction to trauma. Uh, I'm going to read you a passage where I'm completely miss, well, I'm, I'm reacting in a very, very bizarre way um, to my boyfriend's eating fish in a way I didn't like. And I, I was about to go to the police station with him and wasn't aware that I was terrified to go to the police station. I was aware that I couldn't go there myself, even though I'd been there many times. I was aware that I would get lost, but I didn't realize that the thing that was wrong is that I was in a panic about it. Um, He breaks off a piece of fatty fish with his fingers. I watch as he puts the fish in his mouth. He breaks off another piece, seemingly unaware that I am observing him. His hand looks meaty and raw to me now, with penis-like fingers. He stands up and walks toward the sink. I watch him touch the faucet with the same meaty hand. He fills the kettle. Then he takes the same hand, unwashed, and turns the burner on for tea. I see in my mind's eye the smear of fish oil he has left behind on the faucet. I see in my mind's eye a slick track of penis prints glistening on the stove. I imagine the smell, the smell of fish oil, so much like the smell of semen. Wash your filthy hands, I tell my new boyfriend. It is obvious to me now that we cannot continue this relationship. I tell him that, too. I am not obsessively clean, as anyone who knows me would readily confirm, but this person is too crude, too disrespectful, too unaware of the tacky slick of semen he has left behind. You are not in control of yourself. You grab things and you emit too much, I say. Why did I ever imagine I could be in relationship with this man, with any man, with any person? I am vaguely aware I might be saying things that would seem odd to an outsider, things that I might later regret. But in this moment, it doesn't matter. This is an emergency. All that matters now is getting this penis finger person out of my apartment and out of my life. I feel feel so moved by hearing that. I read it many times. And so it sounds like when did it when did it become clear to you that what was going on in that moment was really the panic about going to the police station? Because in oh, that moment God. it felt so real, you know, that oh, it was truly an emergency. I, it it wasn't certainly it wasn't until way after I wrote it <laughs> that I realized oh. exactly what was happening. It's amazing how even being in analysis, I I didn't get what was going on, you know, I'm, 
I have to really step away um, and see it on the page and think about what was going on. It, it felt particularly poignant to me because I think this is one of the ways that PTSD does affect relationships, is that this kind of thing I think is not uncommon at all. And and the person who loves the, the survivor, you know, gets treated as if they've done something heinous when they haven't. And what a what a poignant you captured it, I think, better than ever than I've seen it. Other places, how powerfully the, the legacy of, of PTSD for the loved ones of a person. Right. And that's one of the reasons I I wanted to write this book, because I I was aware that I could step outside myself in a way and describe the feeling. I mean, in a way that I hoped would help family members of veterans. I, you know, I do a lot of work on national security affairs, so I'm I'm quite aware of, of what often happens to veterans and their families. And what's different about what I did from the experience of veterans who come back from a war zone is I could go in and out. I could do this kind of work and then take a break. And I would periodically say to my editor, goodbye, I'm taking a terrorism vacation. I'm going to Saudi Arabia and I'll get back to my book in four months. (laughs) I just, I couldn't do it for too long. Whereas somebody who comes back from Iraq or Afghanistan they they're going to hear that backfiring car as a gun and they can't take a break yeah. that's just they're they're in the the PTSD the acute PTSD and triggers are all over Jessica I want to shift now to talking a little bit about the process of writing the book itself one of the really poignant uh parts for me in reading it was the series of dialogues that you have with your father who has this very clear position of kind of move on, don't be preoccupied with the past. Preoccupy, being preoccupied with the past will, you know, make you dysfunctional in life, sort of buck up. And you really have these incredibly powerful conversations where you insist that he really listen to you and get what happened. And I'm curious to know kind of the follow-up of that. How How is this conversation between the two of you and... Where does it stand now? Well, my father ha- is both very proud of the book um, and I think of me and also sometimes quite he feels exposed and annoyed. And we... But but I think it, it it made us closer to have this conversation and in a way to have the conversation out there on a page for both of us to go back and, and look at uh, really makes it hard for us to slide back in a way. You know, we it's right there that we were able to be intimate and uh, tell the truth, both of us tell the truth about how we felt uh, about what happened and how we feel about each other now. Um, Hmm. Soon after the book came out, my father and I went for a very long bike ride together down the Danube uh, with the Appalachian Mountain Club. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I would say that we are quite close, but I didn't want to have 
a close but false relationship, which is what I felt we we did have. I mean, that to me, reading it was sort of this breathtaking moment where you know he. You, he's out of the country when you're raped. He learns that you are raped at gunpoint, and he does not come back immediately. He stays out of the country for two or three days as originally planned, which, you know, is a level of, I, I suppose, really denial about what had truly happened, which is staggering to the to the reader. And yet part of what was so powerful is that it seemed to me in the book that you both held him very accountable to the reality of that, while seeking so much to understand him, to represent him in his realness. That was very, it was really very moving to how you found that balance. Yeah, I mean, I was struck, you know, in some ways at the role of anger in the book. You know, I was thinking about denial. You write about how denial, when observers collude with denial, it becomes almost worse than the event itself. Yes. And, um... You know, I'm I'm struck at you don't write much about being furious with the police for disbelieving you and not pursuing the crime. Or, you know, I, I'm struck. Did you feel like there was a phase when you were really angry and that subsided? Or how, how has anger been for you in, in this story of your recovery? I don't think I really felt angry with the police. I mean, I, I, they were behaving in what was a normal way at the time. I mean, they, it was very, very hard to believe that a crime like this would occur in the town of Concord, Massachusetts in 1973. And the way police, police really weren't trained to deal with rape. And I, it would be, my expectations, I guess, are, were and are low. Um, Now we would have much higher expectations, and this is not at all how police would deal with a rape today. In fact, it would be quite shocking. I'm not saying that it never happens, but it would be quite shocking and and really a, a kind of malpractice for police to keep teenage girls up until 2 or 3 in the morning, making them go over, write down what happened a couple times. I mean, as it turns out, it was very useful for me that I that yeah. I did that, that the police insisted that I do that because I was able to see what I wrote and remembered immediately after the attack. They also really didn't believe us. They didn't believe that it was a stranger. And that, too, is easy to understand because it was quite unbelievable. I couldn't believe it. I still don't believe it in a way. Right. Well, um, part of what strikes me, though, Jessica, is you have, a, you have an ability to have empathy for, for men. I mean, for, for violent men, you know, for terrorists that you've interviewed, you have, you know, you're really understanding this from the police's perspective as you talk about it, which is just very striking to me. You also write in the book that even at, during the time of the rape, you saw him as broken, you know, as 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 wondering about how he had been victimized. And I'd love to ask you more. How, does this help you? Is there a way that this feels like it helps you to be in that more sort of empathic position? I, I think in some ways it helps and in some ways it doesn't. I mean, I it's easier for me to be empathic about people who have wronged me than to feel fury 
Um, <laughs> so I, I, I don't, I, you know, it's, it's useful for the kind of work I do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, they're pros and cons. Yes, I mean, it seems to me that you've used that that ability that you have so well. You've 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 used it to your great advantage powerfully. Yes, I have. So we're going to have to stop, but before we do, I guess I want to ask you one other thing. I know that you are currently studying analysis that you you know maybe still in an analysis, but also studying it. And I'm curious uh, what you're hoping to learn by doing that, and sort of how analysis has played a role in your own recovery. Well, I feel very fortunate that I I was able to go into analysis. I mean, analysis isn't for everyone, certainly. Um, it's actually quite a, a luxury. Um, I, and I was also very fortunate that for a long time my insurance covered it. Um, why I'm studying it, I'm curious now to understand what it is I've been doing all this time. I think I <laughs> intuited a way to speak to perpetrators that worked and really elicited a lot of useful information and, in fact, almost invariably made the the interviewee feel better. Even if it didn't make me feel better, it made them feel better. And I'm I, I'm curious to understand what what I've been up to and how I can do it better and and that's really why I'm studying analysis it's fascinating so there's a way in which you sort of intuitively became that listening the empathic listening ear to to terrorists without being trained Yes. Right, and you're getting the training after the fact. Right. I wonder if it really will make you any better at it or if just being, you know, you can trust your own instincts. Jessica, we have to stop. If someone wants to read your book, um, is there? do you have a website or to learn more about it? What, how can they find that information? The website is jessicasternbooks.com. Great, and the book, again, is Denial, a Memoir of Terror. Jessica Stern, thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you so much for having me. This is Dr. Ann. This is Safe Space. I've been talking to Jessica Stern about her book, Denial, a Memoir of Terror, a story about the inner experience of PTSD after a a rape at gunpoint when she was a teenager. Uh, If you'd like to listen to the show in in its entirety or email it to a friend, please go to the website, www.safespaceradio.com. You can also subscribe there as well as downloading it through iTunes. Next week, the show will not be on the air. We're going to have a marathon series. series of shows about homelessness, which I encourage you to listen to. It should be really wonderful. And then when we come back in two weeks, we'll be starting a series about being transgender.